that uh, if you are new to Cepolis and would like to receive text reminders about service, then you text the word Cepolis to the number 84576 and you'll be signed up and you will get a reminder of our service each week. All right. <clears throat> so tonight we're going to essentially finish, and I'll explain in a second, our study in John for the moment. We're going we're gonna to finish up the story of the woman at the well. And we're going to be looking at John verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. But then we're going to be pushing the pause button on the book of John. Um, as we've been praying through exactly where our church is going, uh, it really has been on my heart that we're a plant church. And there is a book of the Bible that is specifically about planting churches and literally planting the very first church, and that is the book of Acts. So we're going to hit the pause button in the book of John, and we're going to shift gears. And we are going to go, starting next week, into the book of Acts um, as we build and uh, this new steepleless church together. So, Gina, if you are on with us, if you uh, are available, could you unmute and pray for us this evening? Looks like she's trying to. Bear with us for a second. Gina, if you can hear me. Hey, okay, sorry about that. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for this time together. We ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to come and minister to hearts. We ask that we could have eyes to see and ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That is a good word to get us started. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. All right. So as always, I want to start with a story. If you've ever seen one of these, this is a Liberty Head nickel. And back in 1912, they decided that they were going to switch to the buffalo nickel. And as it turned out, the, the mint created a die or a stamp, if you would, for this coin, because they weren't exactly sure if they were going to run both or just one. Um, but they decided to only run the buffalo head nickel that year. So there were no liberty head nickels created. But the stamp the, the thing that makes the coins still existed. And about five years later, an employee at the U.S. Mint found the stamps, the dies, and he decided to mint five of these coins. And I think it was probably uh, something where he thought he would uh, put some in circulation, make a whole bunch of money. Um, don't know exactly, but what happened was not in 1913, but a few years later, five of these 1913 Liberty Head coins showed up in the United States. Well, there was a man named George Walton, and George Walton loved to collect coins. Uh, in fact, when he uh, was killed in a car accident in 1962, he left his family a small fortune in, coin collect in, in his coin collection. But the treasure of his collection was one of the five, at least he thought, one of the five very, very rare 1913 Liberty Head coins. And he'd always told his family, hey, man, you have got a fortune here when I go. Well, <clears throat> his sister ended up with the coins. And when she took this coin to, a, uh, to an appraiser, they told her it was not real. 
and then it did not have any value or no significant value. And so they just kept it kind of as a, you know, a, a keepsake from, uh, from her, from her brother, George. Well, George's nephew, the sister's son, always had kind of a, kind of a, just a, a dream in the back of his mind that, you know, and, and a curiosity about this coin. And that was, that was rekindled about 30 years after George died when the nephew um, was offered $5,000 for the coin. And he thought, you know, at some point we really should have this checked out again. But they didn't do anything about it. And another 10 years go by. So it's now been 40 years since Uncle George died. And the, uh, now let me get the exact name. It's, it's uh, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna butcher it here. Um, but it's the American Numismatic um, Association, which is the, the group that, that collects coins. Um, they had their annual convention in July. And on display that year were all four of the Liberty Head nickels. And so he thought, you know, I'll take my, maybe I'll take my coin down there. Well, it turns out that they contacted the sister because they had heard the story that this possible fifth and final coin might exist. And so they actually wanted to write an article about it. And Coin World Magazine interviewed um, Cheryl, who was the sister of the guy who collected the coin. So as it turns out, there was uh, a firm that really was excited about this. So they put up a $1 million reward if anybody had the fifth coin. And so the, the nephew said, well, I'm, I'm gonna take it down. What the heck, I'm gonna go see who knows, maybe they were wrong. Maybe this is the fifth coin. So he went down, there were six appraisers there, plus of course, all these experts from the magazine and from the society. And it turned out that he did indeed have the fifth and final coin in the series. And not only did he get the $1 million bounty, but he got to keep the coin, which was worth over $2 million. And that was some 20 years ago. So here you got um, literally a treasure that's been sitting collecting dust for 40 years. Um, and you've got this small group of people who get to realize this quote unquote buried treasure, this treasure that was around them and they just didn't even realize what they had. Uh, so let's see what this has to do with today's scripture as we go into John. Again, we're going to be in John chapter 4, we're going to start out with verses 27 through 30. But before we start reading, I want to remind you of where we are in this story. Last week, we talked about Jesus coming to the well in the Samaritan village, and he has met this woman. So he's had a conversation with the Samaritan woman. Um, he told her about the five previous husbands that she had. He told her that she was living with a man who was not her husband um, and obviously flabbergasted her. She's quite amazed that he knows these things about her. Then they have a conversation about the living water. You guys remember the living water? And the very last thing he tells her is, I am the Messiah. So when we pick up this story, I want you to remember that the very last thing that happened before we pick up tonight is Jesus has just told this woman, I am the Messiah. So starting in verse 27, 
Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. All right, there are a whole bunch of things happening here. But, uh, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is I often hear people say that they struggle being good disciples or an effective witness for Christ. And our text really gives us some help and and being the kind of witness that um, here comes from a very unexpected source. you got a woman who is a brand new convert, literally minutes old. Um, she's still living with a man outside marriage. She knows almost no sound doctrine. And she has no training at all to share her faith. And yet we're going to see she does a pretty amazing job. Um, so when Jesus tells her that he is the Messiah, she gets so excited that she leaves her water pot and goes back to the village. And she tells these men who normally would have laughed at anything she said, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? You see, when Jesus told this woman he was the Messiah, she had to decide, is he or isn't he? And she made her choice. So that's my first question for you to ponder tonight. Have you made that decision? Have you decided, is he or isn't he? It's an important question to ask. While John never states explicitly that she believed Jesus, um, I believe she did. And how can we know that? Well, look at her response to Jesus. She immediately goes and tells others about him. All right, this is a pretty good indication of where she is in her belief. And today we're going to see really three clear principles. First is that God uses witnesses who are excited about Jesus. Second is that we need to have a harvest perspective. And the third is that we need to invite others to come to him. And here in verses 28 and 29, we see clearly the first principle. God uses the witness of those who are excited about Jesus. Um, and I think like last week, we need to really make sure we have cultural context for this story. All right. So in verse 27, the disciples return to the village um, with the food, right? They've got the, they've got their Big Mac and fries for Jesus. Um, and it says they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. And, and their amazement stems from two sources. First, the cultural conditioning that they had. And second, that they truly didn't understand Jesus' mission at this point. So first, let's look at cultural conditioning. We touched a little bit on this last week, but I want to reiterate. Um, first of all, culturally, it was taboo for a Jewish man to speak with a woman in public, much less a Samaritan woman, much less a Samaritan woman with questionable morals, okay? Um, you may not realize this, but some, not all, but some Jewish leaders taught that it was actually a waste of time to talk with a woman. 
even with your own wife, and at worst, a diversion from the study of the Torah that could possibly lead one to hell. Okay, this is a very strong position. Um, some rabbis, this is amazing, some rabbis went so far as to suggest that teaching your daughter the Torah was as inappropriate as selling her into prostitution. So to speak with a woman in public, even your wife, could lead to gossip and should be avoided. Um, some other Jewish leaders also taught that Samaritan women specifically were perpetually unclean. So when the disciples were amazed to find her, to find Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman, um, you can probably understand why. Now, before we move on, I want to be super, super clear. The lies that the Jews were believing about women absolutely, positively were not biblical, okay? They were, what they were doing was sinful and absolutely unacceptable to God. God wasn't going for any of this. But remember, we don't fight against people. We fight against the powers and principalities of evil. We fight against Satan. And the Jews were deceived by Satan about how to treat women, okay? Um, and quite frankly, as more and more people fell into that trap, it became a cultural norm. Now, I want to kind of expand on that because our culture today is filled with cultural lies. Uh, I'm going to give you an example, and this is this is a, a little bit bold, but I'm going to give you a, a cultural example of things that we believe in our in today's society. Um, when I was a child abortion was considered unacceptable by society. And then came Roe versus Wade. And when Roe v. Wade first kind of hit the scene, the whole speak about abortion was that it was really only for women who are in danger of dying during their pregnancy. Today, some 50-ish years later, um, not only is it culturally normal, but abortion is actually championed as a civil right. Our society is now conditioned to accept this form of murder, and as a result, we now kill almost 43 million babies per year. But it doesn't stop there. Um, the next step was euthanasia, and when euthanasia started, it was primarily in Europe, um, and at first, it was only for the terminally ill. Then it became for anyone who simply wanted to die, for example. Um, up until recently, anyone in the Netherlands over 16 could euthanize themselves for any reason. And if you were between the ages of 12 and 16, you could be euthanized with your parents' permission. They now have taken it a frightening step further. A parent can have their terminally ill child killed if they're under 12 years old. And if that's not shocking enough, Down syndrome is considered a terminal illness. So right now, in the Netherlands, if it is too much to care for your child who has Down syndrome, you can take them to the doctor and kill them legally. Okay, on the same note, Iceland is now boasting that they have eradicated Down syndrome from their country, not because of any research or cure, 
but simply because they kill all the babies born with the disease. That's like saying you've solved childhood cancer because you kill all the children who have cancer. Um, similarly, the Jews had normalized this horrible treatment of women. And we need to understand this if we're going to understand this story, just how shocking it was that Jesus was talking to a woman. Now, quick side note, Jesus would absolutely turn this behavior on its head and the way men were supposed to treat women and the understanding of how we were supposed to treat ladies. Um, in fact, one of the things that's so compelling about the truth of the gospel and the viability of the gospel is that God uses women in the story. For example, um, after Jesus was resurrected, the two people who find the empty tomb are women. Well, if you're creating a story, if you're concocting a story that's a lie, the last thing you would do is use the testimony of women because their testimony wasn't considered valid, okay? So um, I just want to make sure we really understand um, the complexity of the story and how this all plays together. Uh, so back to today's scripture. In spite of their, their shock, um, the disciples don't question Jesus about speaking to her. Um, you know, maybe they were struck speechless by their shock. But by the time it wore off, I think Jesus was already teaching them about what his mission was. And we're going to discuss that shortly. But John continues, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to them, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly why she left her water pot, but I, I think it was because she was so excited. Um, carrying that heavy pot would have slowed her down. So she rushes back to the village and tells everybody about this amazing encounter she's had with this stranger who uncovered her past. And I think that her exaggeration, because she says Jesus had told her all the things she had ever done. Um, I think this also kind of reflects her excitement. She is excited to share this news. But normally she would never have brought up her sordid past. But this encounter with Jesus had changed her. And now she wanted everybody to meet him too. Uh, remember, uh, the testimony of a woman, much less a woman of ill repute, would be completely disregarded in this culture. So this woman being notorious in this small village for her live-in boyfriend and her five previous husbands would not have been listened to. And yet the men in the village do listen. Most of the men in this village would have avoided having any contact with her. Uh, to avoid raising the suspicion that there might be some wrongdoing involved with her. I, I promise you, if word got back to their wives that they had a kind of a conversation with this woman, um, there would have been trouble when they got home that night, okay? Yet they listened and responded to her invitation to go see whether Jesus might be the Messiah. And with all of this against her, why was her witness so effective? I think part of the answer lies in the way she approached these men. Her question implies a negative answer. This is not the Christ, is it? If she had boldly stated that she had met the Messiah, 
they probably would have had a good laugh and gone back to their conversation. But that's not what happens. Because she framed her question as a tentative suggestion, it piqued their curiosity. And she sort of deferred the wisdom to the men for let the, to let them kind of make their own conclusion. Um, and this teaches us some things about being a good witness for Jesus. And one of the things it teaches us is it's often more powerful to ask good questions than make pronouncements. There's a book called Sharing Jesus Without Fear, and it's written by a man named Bill Fay. And he suggests that you ask five questions. Do you have any kind of spiritual belief? To you, who is Jesus? Do you think there's a heaven or a hell? Um, if you died, where are you going? And why would you, why would God let you into heaven? And then once you have those five questions answered, you ask the sixth question. Hey, if, if what you believe is not true, do you want me to tell you? Faye says that in thousands of encounters, he ne he's never gotten a firm no to that last question. Because at that point, you can then show the person the, the, the Bible verses that uh, explain the gospel. I think the really, though, the main reason this was so effective, what she went and did, um, is that she is simply so excited. They are seeing a dramatic change. She was a woman who literally went to the well that day at noon because she didn't want to encounter anybody. And here she is not just talking to anybody, but talking to men and telling them the story, um, they could clearly see there was a change in this woman's behavior. And that's what people need to see in us, a change in our behavior. So I want now to ask you uh, a few questions for you to think about, um, some questions for you to consider. And the first one is, are you excited about doing God's work? When you get up in the morning, are you excited for the opportunity to share Jesus with someone, to help someone be a better disciple? Is that something that gets you fired up? I mean, it's one thing to be obedient, but it's another to do, uh, to do that with passion and excitement. Another question to consider, especially if you haven't yet come to Christ, is do you listen to the testimony of others with discerning ears? For those of us who believe we have the Holy Spirit to work with us, but when we hear stories, do we really listen with a discerning ear to hear, is this story true? Is this testimony true? Is it valid? Does it line up with the Word of God? And for those of you um, maybe who haven't made the decision to follow Christ yet, I really want you to think about this one. Do you really believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And, and if not, how many witnesses would it take you to believe that he was? All right, moving on. Uh, the story picks up in verse 31, and it, and it gets interesting here. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. So here we see that God uses the witness of those who have a harvest mindset. Because verses 31 through 38 are kind of a meanwhile back at the well scene that shows us the second reason the disciples were amazed uh, that Jesus was talking uh, with this woman. They were clueless about Jesus' mission. They didn't understand what his mission was. Um, they've come back, like I said, they've got the Big Mac and fries for Jesus, but he isn't interested in eating. And they urge him to eat, but he tells them, I have food that you don't know about. They don't get it. So they wander among themselves. Hey, you know, was there a taco truck? What? You know, I can just see them having this conversation. Did someone bring him food? They just don't get it. But when the woman leaves and they want to get on with their mission, namely getting Jesus to eat so they can get back to walking to where they're going, Jesus clues them into his mission. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and accomplish his work. And right about that time, here these villagers come streaming up to Jesus. And he, he asked him, he said, don't you say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The disciples need to develop a harvest mindset. They're not thinking about harvesting. They haven't sown any seed here yet. They're not thinking about harvesting, but Jesus is telling them, you need to be mindful. You need to pay attention. You need to have a harvest mindset. You need to be ready to harvest whenever you have the opportunity. This harvest mindset really puts the will of God um, and his work above everything else. So often we're like the disciples. We're focused on the temporal, um, but really clueless to the spiritual and the eternal. Um, you know, maybe a neighbor kid annoys you because he's walking across your lawn and he's stepping on your flowers. Uh, but instead of sharing the love of Christ with him, you chew him out and tell him if he does it again, you're going to tell his parents, uh, you know, or uh, you've just put your yard work above God's work. You know, or, or a person at work, oh, their, their, their attitude just grates on you. They're just so obnoxious. Um, and, and then, you know, instead of, instead of sharing Christ with them, you just go and tell your boss how annoying they are. You've just put your comfort above God's work. This harvest mindset puts, puts the will of God and his work above everything else. And a harvest mindset focuses on sowing and reaping. Jesus makes four points in this short lesson on sowing and reaping. The, the first one is that, man, the harvest may be ready in situations where you would never expect it. Jesus seems to be quoting a familiar saying that probably sounds something like this and for us today, a hey, Rome wasn't built in a day. 
all right? The, isn't it still four months to harvest, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. You don't sow seed and expect to go out the next day and reap a harvest. It takes time for the crop to grow. But in this case, the spiritual harvest is instant. It's, it's immediate. It's right now, okay? Be ready. Expect that harvest. Um, the Samaritan woman was as unlikely a prospect for evangelism as there ever has been one. Okay. And yet what a harvest. And by crossing these cultural taboos and taking the time to talk with this Samaritan woman, Jesus ended up reaping a harvest with the entire village. You never know how God's going to use your witness with someone as unlikely a prospect as they may seem to be. Second thing is there's great reward and great joy in doing God's work. In verse 36, Jesus says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Look, earthly wages are of no value when we die. But the, the wages and rewards that we build up in eternity, they're worth working for. And the third thing is to reap a harvest, seeds must be sown. I actually have a, a friend uh, who's a pastor, been a pastor for many, many years. He's retired now. And he, he told me recently, you know, in all my days of preaching, I never preached on sowing seeds. And I never hear any of my compadres preaching about sowing seeds. I'm going to write a really good message about sowing seeds and share it with my pastor friends. Um, and that's, I think, exactly what happens here in verses 37 and 38. Um, G, you know, for in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Look, to state the obvious, there is no reaping without prior sowing. And really quick, quick sidetrack. I know most of us didn't grow up on a farm. Reaping is literally taking the harvest. It's cutting the stalks down. It's taking the fruit away from what you have, from what you have grown. And sowing literally means planting seeds, okay? So I think we often forget this. We expect to reap and some of, some of us, especially those who've been around for a while, who really go out and, and try to be good uh, witnesses for people, we expect to reap without sowing, right? Sometimes we're the opposite. And, and we wonder, why aren't people coming to Christ? But to state the obvious, maybe we haven't sown any seeds, okay? Something to think about. And the fourth one, Jesus points out, is you, you may do the hard work of sowing only to have others reap harvest one sows and another reaps we need to keep in mind that we never labor alone that's not the way god intended it to be if you lead someone to christ it's probably because someone before you has planted seeds and they've that those seeds have been watered right and you just came at the right time to reap that harvest in other words to help that person cross the finish line um and at the same time, if you share the gospel with someone and they don't respond, don't be discouraged. Instead, pray that God would send others around that person to sow more seeds, to water those seeds. First um, Corinthians 3.6 says, and this is Paul speaking, I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named Adora, Adoniram Judson, um, but he was a missionary and he labored his entire lifetime in the country of Burma. And during his lifetime, he had much hardship, many disappointed. And even by the time he died, he had very little visible fruit. But today, there are over a million Christians in Burma who trace their roots back to Judson's labors. Your sowing is not in vain if others reap the fruit. Be faithful in sowing the seed. So thus God uses the witness of those who are excited about Jesus and who have a harvest mindset. So here's a question for you to consider. Are you storing up treasure on earth or are you storing up treasure in heaven? Because the truth is the best, the best treasure on earth doesn't even compare to the worst treasure in heaven. And if you're a believer and if you're trying to trying to be part of the harvest, do you value sowing as much as you value reaping? A couple more questions I really think you should consider. One is, are you hungry to do God's work? Is this what drives you in the morning when you get up? Do you desire, do you have a fire in you? And my last question is similar. Does doing the work of God sustain you? Is doing the work of God living and everything else is just surviving? I want you to think about those things because if that's not where you are, I want to suggest that's where you could be. You could wake up every morning excited to spend some time with God and pray and read his word and ask for him to send divine appointments to you. God, please send someone in my path today so that I can get sidetracked on what I would normally be doing and focus on your work. There could be a life that looks like that for you if you're not already there. All right. I want to finish out this story. Starting in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. All right, so here's the third concept. God uses witnesses of those who invite others to come to Jesus Christ. John 39 through 42 really wraps that up, right? And in light of the centuries of hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews, I talked about that last week, um, it's absolutely amazing that these Samaritans completely embrace Jesus. And there is no question that initially 
that was because of the woman's testimony. It was her testimony that broke down those walls. And then the Holy Spirit did the rest. Because the truth is, the Holy Spirit can break down barriers that you and I never could, and we need to let him do that. So another question for you to consider. And this might, this one might get you a little bit. It's one that made me stop and pause. If an opportunity arose to witness, would you be willing to stop what you're doing and give up two days? Would you be willing to do that? So that third concept is to invite sinners to come to Jesus. The woman invited the men of the village, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. They went, they saw Jesus and they believed in him. And that really is our conclusion from this message. That's God's invitation to you. Come to Jesus. Are you burdened with sin? Come. Are you thirsty for the water of life? Come. Jesus gives living water freely to unworthy sinners like this Samaritan woman who come and ask him for it. And by the way, we're just as unworthy as she was. And when we come, he uses us as an effective witness, inviting others to come to Jesus and to live. Literally, when this story starts, this woman's life is so off track. She comes, literally, she comes from the wrong side of town. She has lived her life in the wrong way. Her life is really going bad places. And then she meets Jesus and everything changes. Everything changes. Her purpose for living changes. And in one conversation, she is changed from a woman who's completely lost to a woman who saves her village. It's a really a pretty amazing story. Um, and it should be encouraging to us because she has no, she has no background. She's never been trained. She's never been taught. She does, like we said earlier, she doesn't even know the scripture yet. And yet she is out saving people. She's telling people about Jesus. The truth is, just like Paul said in Corinthians, I planted, Apollos waters, but God does the saving, right? I'm paraphrasing here. God does the heavy lifting. We don't have to do that. We just have to sow the seeds, water the seeds. And when the harvest is ready, reap the benefits. And we get just as much joy, honestly, as the person being saved. It is, there is no greater There's no greater emotion. There's, no, there's nothing more wonderful than helping someone meet Jesus for the first time. It's absolutely amazing. All right. Remember earlier we talked about that $2 million nickel? Well, the truth is most of us 
we'll never find millions of dollars in earthly treasure as much as we would like it to be true and buy lottery tickets hoping it's true we're probably not going to have that happen to us but many if not most of us will strive for earthly treasure just the same right we're going to work too many hours neglecting too many people and being too busy to do anything for god because quite frankly we want that salary or that house or those season tickets but we have a choice we can start accumulating treasure in heaven real treasure treasure far greater than anything we could ever imagine on this earth and by the way the plumbing in your mansion in heaven never needs to be repaired okay so i want you to think about what your next steps might be um, for those who have not yet received the gift of salvation, it, it's time to listen to the testimony of those who have come to know Jesus and take that step of living a life with purpose, of beginning a life of faith and understanding of where your future is, right? Let us help you become part of God's eternal family. And for some of you, you need to maybe stop focusing on your mission like the disciples, they wanted they wanted to feed Jesus and keep moving, right? Maybe it's time to stop thinking about your mission in life and start thinking about God's mission for your life. And for others of you, a village is waiting. There's a group of people who are scared, they're uncertain about the future, they're alone, and quite frankly, they're they're destined for eternal separation from God if you don't go and tell them about Jesus. And if you don't tell them how they can meet him and you don't help them by introducing them to Jesus, it may be your responsibility to do that. So I want you to think about where you are and where God wants you to be, because the truth is he will use you for incredible and amazing things. When he designed your life, he designed it perfectly. He designed it with amazing purpose, things that you could never imagine for yourself. God imagined for you before he even created Adam and Eve, he thought about you and what you would accomplish and the great things you would do. And he will do all the heavy lifting for you. You just have to step where he asks you to step. So let's pray about that. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you thought about us before you even started creating man. Before you breathed this universe into existence, you thought about the people on this Zoom right now, today. You thought exactly what they would be good at, where the people they would be influential with, the, the place they would live, the people they would know, the encounters they would have. And you gave them every tool and every background and everything they would ever need to do the work that you called them to do. It's just amazing. Lord, we thank you so much for that. We thank you that as broken and lost as we were without you, we can do these amazing things with you. I thank you for the amazing things you'll do for each and every person on this Zoom right now. 
I thank you for the future that is still in front of us, the, uh, the amazing, wonderful things we'll accomplish together as a family. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice of your son on the cross. It's because of him that we can all call ourselves brothers and sisters today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this coming week, um, first of all, we will, on Thursday, we will be going out as we uh, always do. We'll be looking for persons of peace. If you're in the local area and would like to join us, we would love to have you do that. Um, now is the time for you to go in the chat. Remember earlier we talked about putting the first name of someone that you care about, you love, you're concerned about, that needs to be introduced to Jesus, go now to the chat, put their name in. Um, first names only, please, so that we can pray for them. By the way, as I'm looking at the chat, I realize the message guide is there. If you have not grabbed that, you can grab it off our website or out of the chat. Um, there are more questions for you to answer if you wanna dig a little deeper into this lesson. Um, but I really want to leave you with this. Uh, many, not all, many of you on this Zoom right now are parents, and I want you to think for a moment uh, about when you have left your children for an extended period of time. I'll bet that the last thing you told them was whatever you thought was most important for them to remember while you were gone, right? So that might have been something like, hey, don't open the door for a stranger, or don't use the oven, or make sure you feed and water the dog, or whatever you wanted to make sure they remembered. Well, next week, we're going to see exactly what Jesus thought. Hey, these are the most important things for my disciples to remember as it pertains to planting a church, which is exactly what we're doing. All of you on this journey uh, with us, we are, we're planting a church, and, and God says some specific things about these are, the, these are the things that I want to make sure you really remember before I go to heaven to be with the Father. And that's what we're going to be looking at next week. So I, I don't want you to miss that. This is, uh, this is going to be an exciting time of kicking off the book of Acts and, and seeing how that applies to us here at the Steepleless family. We love you. We thank you so much for being here. Um, as always, you can contact us through the website. We love you. We'll see you next week. God bless.